Well, welcome back. We are glad that you are here. We are about to hear from Joe. Joe has chosen a special passage um, that he uh, wants to preach on, which is always what you do for ordination services. And so we're going to hear a special service message from 2 Timothy. And here to read the scripture is Josiah. Our reading today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, As Dan mentioned, my name is Joe. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. It's my pleasure to meet you, welcome you wherever you are, and wherever you are in your journey of faith. Over this past year, I've had a chance to talk to many of you over Zoom, over a phone call, over a social distance walk, and I've noticed a couple of things. One is the fact that despite the discouragements of COVID, many of you have kept meeting with your small groups over Zoom. You have been tuning in to our virtual Sunday and prayer services, and you have found ways to support those who are in need. And so in many ways, you have stayed connected with one another and with the church, which is amazing. Another thing that I've noticed is that while we have continued to keep up with many of those activities, the vision and the mission that are behind those activities are becoming a little foggy. I get the sense that some of us have disconnected our day-to-day Christian activities from the big picture that we can find in Scripture. You see, without clarity in vision and mission, we can become busybodies doing lots of activities, lots of good activities, and yet we're not sure exactly what we're trying to accomplish, or where we're heading to. And so if I were to ask you, what is the one thing? What is the one goal? What is the one mission that ties together all the activities that we do? What would you say? For those of you who are still considering the Christian faith, I'm sure you would agree that clarity and vision and mission is absolutely vital to your personal and, and professional growth especially for those of us who are extremely driven, we want to know where we're going, and we don't want to waste time. And perhaps that's why some of you are here this morning. You're hitting the benchmarks of what our culture consider, uh, considers to be a good life, a comfortable life. But yet you're, you're still unclear as to where these, these benchmarks are leading you to. You're hitting your financial goal. You're hitting your professional goal. You're hitting your relational goal but yet you are wondering what's the ultimate point of it all. And so this morning, I want to look at this short passage with you in 2 Timothy. I want to take you on a brief tour in Scripture and allow Scripture to remind us of what is the vision and the mission of the Christian life. 
For those of us who are still investigating the Christian faith, I invite you to come along on this tour and see if the Bible can help you make sense of what's been going on in your life. And so in this passage, I want to focus on two key concepts, the call of the Christian life and the cost of the Christian life, the call and the cost of the Christian life. Let me begin by giving you some very quick context of this book in the Bible. This was a pastoral letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, who was a young pastor at that time. But much more significantly, this was perhaps the last letter that was written by Paul when he was in prison for a second time in Rome for preaching the gospel. In fact, at the end of this letter, you can tell that Paul fully expected to die at any moment. Listen to these words that he wrote in chapter 4 and feel the gravity of the situation that Paul found himself in. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This was nothing less than a farewell letter to his beloved disciple. And as we know, people don't feel their farewell letters with trivial stories or content that are insignificant. On the contrary, they carry important final messages from the writer to the recipient. And in the middle of this incredibly important farewell letter, Paul reminded Timothy of his calling. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In these few short sentences, Paul summarized the call of the Christian life. And so here is the first point. The call of the Christian life is to make disciples. Now, I know in this context, Paul is specifically talking about making disciples who will be future pastors and elders in a local church. And so there is a particular emphasis on character, and there is a specific command to focus on developing qualified men who can fulfill that particular role. But the broader implication is this. Every Christian ought to make disciples. That is the mission of the Christian life. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, after his resurrection, Jesus called a meeting with all his followers and gave them the mission to make disciples and what is known as the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus was very clear here. The call to make disciples is a call for everyone who follows him. Whatever your vocation may be, you may be a plumber, you may be an electrician, you may be a healthcare worker, you may be a professional athlete. As long as you are a Christian, you are called to make disciples. It's not optional. Disciple-making is not just something that religious professionals do. It's a calling that every Christian must obey. What Paul did here in 2 Timothy was simply applying the Great Commission principle to the context of pastoral leadership. 
Now, for those of us who are not in pastoral ministry, and that's the vast majority of us, you're probably wondering, well, how do we make disciples? How do we fulfill the Great Commission? We fulfill that calling by identifying men and women who have the desire to grow in the gospel, and then we equip them to apply the gospel, and then we ask them to do the same with others so that there will be a multiplying impact. To put it simply, we identify, we equip, and we multiply. That's how we make disciples, and that's how we help fulfill the Great Commission. When we look at the pattern that Jesus has left for us in Scripture, what did he do? He shared the gospel with individuals and with crowds of thousands. But he didn't just stop there. He helped them to apply the gospel to their everyday life. Remember John chapter 4? The women at the well? That woman, like many of us in our culture, assumed that romantic relationships would give us the ultimate joy and significance that our hearts are longing for. But what did Jesus say to her? What did Jesus reveal to her? He said, no human relationship can ever completely satisfy your relational thirst, not even romantic relationships. She was asking too much. She was putting way too much hope and aspirations on selfish and imperfect human beings. Only God can truly and completely satisfy our relational thirst. Because only God, who is perfectly gracious and patient, can enter into our brokenness to help us taste and see the perfect love that we were created for. Only God has that kind of power and love to satisfy our thirst for love. What did the woman do after hearing Jesus applying the gospel to her life? She immediately went back to her town and started telling everyone about her conversation with Jesus. And we, see, and we see Jesus applying this pattern of identifying, equipping, and multiplying with, with Peter, with James, with John, and with many others. And of course, this calling extends to those of us who are parents. Children are precious gifts from God, even though sometimes we don't feel like that. Especially for those of us with multiple young children at home. I know exactly how you feel because I have two very active boys who are three and five at home. And they do give us trouble. And there's no doubt that COVID has exacerbated the intensity of parental challenges in the past year. But nevertheless, we cannot lose sight of the call to help our children to become followers of Jesus. Yes, we need to make sure they're being properly developed intellectually, emotionally, academically. But but unless we help them to establish a gospel framework from which they can process the meaning and the struggles of their life, they will eventually end up like a ship adrift in an ocean without any sense of purpose or direction. Without a gospel framework to anchor their life on, their life will eventually be, be dictated by their circumstances rather than by the God who loves them and who is in perfect control of their life. That is why we cannot neglect our call to disciple our children. Now, to embrace this call to make disciples is going to cost you. And here's the second point, the cost of the Christian life. We cannot embrace the call to make disciples if we don't embrace 
the call to make sacrifices in our life. It doesn't matter what role you have in the church. It doesn't matter what life stage, which life stage you're in. The call to make disciples is going to cost you. And in this passage, Paul uses three different analogies to highlight the four different costs of making disciples. One can easily argue that the degree of these costs is greater for those in leadership. But nevertheless, these costs are consistent with what Jesus has taught for anyone who wishes to follow him and to obey his call. So let's look at the four different costs that we should expect in verses 3 to 6. The first cost, suffering. In verse 3, Paul uses a military analogy to describe the suffering that Christian needs to prepare to endure if we're going to fulfill our call to make disciples. It's not a coincidence that Paul chose to use this analogy. Naturally, soldiers are expected to enter into various conflicts that will endanger their lives. Nobody signs up for the military expecting an easy and comfortable life. Everyone who is in the military understands the risks that they're signing up for, especially if their country is in the middle of a military conflict. I'm sure many of us have watched Band of Brothers or some kind of war movies. Just watching those movies gives us a sense of the psychological, the the physical, and the emotional impact that soldiers have to endure on a daily basis. And don't forget the emotional toll that the family members of the soldiers have to endure as well. Can you imagine the stress of wondering if your husband, if your child, or someone you love, if they're going to make it home safely? It's no wonder that Paul specifically uses the analogy of a soldier to convey the cost of making disciples. Jesus himself said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The Christian life was never meant to be safe and comfortable. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The Christian life is inherently difficult and full of risks. Look at Paul's life. Remember when he was writing his letter? He was not sitting on top of an ivory tower living a life of comfort and respect. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. But even before that, he had to endure so much affliction and opposition. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He experienced frequent danger during his travel from city to city. And on top of it all, the pressure of dealing with a multitude of pastoral issues. When Paul said to Timothy to prepare himself to endure the suffering of a soldier in Christ, Paul was not talking in theoretical terms. He was speaking from real-life experience. Now, please listen very carefully here. Paul was not saying that if you are a Christian, you will necessarily experience all the exact same kinds of suffering as he did. No. But what he was saying is that if you're going to be a Christian who will obey the call to make disciples, you must be ready to suffer. And we must be willing to endure the hardships that come along with that call. For our present cultural context, I think suffering and, or hardship often expresses itself in some form of, some form of uh, relational loss, reputational loss, 
professional loss or financial loss. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but, but generally speaking, those are four kinds of losses that I've seen Christians in our context had to endure to fulfill their call to make disciples. Relationally, are, are we willing to, to take some risks to share the gospel with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers? In terms of our reputation, are we willing to look like a fool by acknowledging our faith in Jesus in various contexts, including culturally hostile environments? Professionally and financially, are we willing to give up certain opportunities so that you will have the integrity and the time to make disciples? These are not easy questions to answer by any means. But, but if, we're, if, we're going to be, if we're going to be, if we are going to faithfully obey the call to make disciples, everything has to be on the table. Everything. I know it's hard, but there is no other way. Next, in verse 4, Paul talks about another important cost, the cost of staying focused. Why is that a cost? Well, because we only have limited of time uh, and capacity. When we say yes to something, logically, we're saying no to something else. And parents know this better than any, anybody else. We can't have everything in life. We're, we're constantly short on time and capacity. And so in continuing his military analogy, Paul reminds Timothy that soldiers should not be distracted by civilian pursuits. As one scholar puts it, the soldier does not become entangled in things that would be a hindrance to his single-minded dedication to follow gladly the commands of his leader. To be disciples of Jesus and to follow through with his call to make disciples, we cannot live a life of distraction. Remember, this world is not our final home. It is not our final destination. Heaven is our final home and our final destination. There's a vast difference between enjoyment and distraction. Now, Paul was not saying that we shouldn't have time for rest and recreation because that would be a, a direct violation of one of, that, uh, uh, of one of the Ten Commandments. Rest and recreation in their proper place are activities that reinvigorate our relationship with God and our capacity to obey His call. But in our culture, but in our culture, the trap that we often falls into is that we're so attached to those recreational activities that they've become distractions to us. Remember when the Raptors won the NBA championship a couple of years ago? Remember when Kawhi was an absolute beast in the playoffs? I'm sure all of us still remember that incredible buzzer-beating shot against the 76ers. Remember how the ball bounced on the rim a couple of times before it went in? I mean, that was incredible. For almost two months during that entire playoff that year, so many of us in Toronto, we were glued to the TV. Every time there was a Raptors game, the bars were packed. People were at home watching the games with their friends, we consumed whatever Raptors content that the media threw at us. For a lot of people, Raptors became the number one priority of their life. 
our life literally revolved around the rapture's schedule. I mean, I gave up trying to schedule meetings with some of the guys in our church because I knew that they would be watching the Raptors game. And, and to be honest with you, I, I was kind of relieved because I was secretly hoping to watch the Raptors myself. And I think it's fair to say that men's ministry probably took a step back during that couple of months. Now, for some of you, maybe you don't care about sports at all. Maybe what you care about is traveling. You have a bucket list of places you want to visit before you turn 35, before you're married. And obviously, COVID has severely limited our traveling options. But I wonder in a year or two from now, after COVID is behind us, how many of us will be singularly focused on hitting that bucket list to make up for lost time during COVID? The bottom line is this. We need to stay focused. And we need to learn how to enjoy various leisure activities without letting, them, without letting them become a distraction to our calling to make disciples. Let's continue in verse 5. Paul used a picture of an athlete to highlight another cost that we ought to bear, which is the cost of commitment. Paul said that only those athletes who compete according to the rules will be crowned. In every sport... In every sport, even back in Paul's days, there were rules governing athletic competitions. If an athlete violated any of the rules, they would have been disqualified. In terms of our call to make disciples, what does that commitment look like? What are the rules that we must commit ourselves to? In verse 2, Paul talked about the faithful transmission of his teaching from one generation of leaders to the next. When you read the rest of chapter 2 and other letters from Paul, such as Colossians, it is evident that the center of Paul's teaching is the gospel message. And the gospel message is about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul said this to the Corinthian church. Now, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. To obey the call to make, to make disciples means that we must be committed to the purity of the gospel. We're not permitted to modify the gospel message in any way, shape, or form, even when it's an unwelcome message. If we modified the gospel message, if we lose the gospel, we lose Christianity. That is what is at stake here. This is why Paul was so adamant that Timothy and future generations of leaders must never compromise the message of the gospel. As Tariq argued passionately last week, the gospel message has profound eternal significance. And finally, in verse 6, Paul used the image of a farmer to describe the hardworking lifestyle that we need to embrace in making disciples. Farmers wake up early and they start working before sunrise and their, their work often don't end until the early evening. 
They work outside. They work under all kinds of weather conditions. Farming was especially difficult in Paul's time during the first century before all the advancement of technology. It was time-consuming, and it was labor-intensive. And so similarly, the process of making disciples is time-consuming and labor-intensive. You can't just disciple someone from a distance. You, you have to spend time to get to know them. You've got to understand their struggles. You have to equip them with the knowledge of the gospel and scripture. You have, you have to help them to apply the gospel into their lives. And so in many ways, making disciples is really about cultivating gospel relationships. Relationships where mature Christians help less mature Christians to grow in their faith and to help them to share their faith with others. In the past six weeks, we looked at different parts of Colossians. We talked about setting our our minds and our hearts on Jesus. We talked about putting sin to to death. We talked about living out our new identity in Jesus. We, We talked about bearing and forgiving one another and striving to maintain the unity that we have in Jesus. All of these are important discipleship issues, and they ought to be taught and applied in the context of a local church where gospel relationships are percolating and flourishing. And we can't get there as a church if we're not committed to work hard. Now, let me be very clear here. Paul is not saying that our relationship with God is based on our works or spiritual performance. You know, it's all about how many people we can disciple or how quickly we can rise up in the ranks of spiritual leadership. Those are misinterpretation of Paul's teaching here. But what Paul is saying that if you want to embrace the call to make disciples, you better be prepared to work hard. There are no shortcuts. And so this is probably why Paul ended his illustration with the reminder that there will be a reward for those hardworking farmers. What kind of reward was Paul talking about? Primarily a future reward. In theological terms, an eschatological reward. Throughout the centuries, many theologians have noted that the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city, but not just any city a future city where God's vision of justice, of peace, of prosperity will be perfectly realized. A future city where God's people can commune with him directly. A place where men and women of different nations and tribes and and ethnicities will live in perfect harmony. There will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more injustice. A future city where God will rule and reign in all of his glory. And the citizenship for that future city will be the reward for everyone who has committed to the call and the cost to make disciples. Can you imagine how incredible it will be to to worship God face to face with all the men and women you have discipled? You see, God is calling us to have a vision to create a new city in Toronto where our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers can have a taste, a visual, tangible experience of that future city. And God is calling us to, to make this vision into a reality by embracing our mission to make disciples. 
this vision and this mission, they are the linchpin that ties together everything that we do as a church and as individual Christians. Now, I know this vision of a new city and this, this mission of making disciples seem incredibly daunting at this moment. For those of you who are still considering the Christian faith, you're probably wondering, you're probably thinking that I'm at best an incredibly idealistic person, and at worst, or at worst, a ridiculously naive person. For me to ask you to consider giving up your life of comfort, to embrace a life of discomfort, a life full of risks, a life of delay gratification, you're probably thinking, you got to be kidding me. Who are you? Look, I get it. I get it because that's exactly how I felt about 20 years ago when I was still wrestling with the Christian faith. But what I find really ironic these days is that our culture often tells us that we have the freedom to be who we want to be. We have the freedom to choose any meaning and purpose for our lives. And yet it seems like this lack of ultimate purpose is creating more confusion, more anxiety, more questions than answers, quite frankly. So perhaps what what you need is not more freedom or options. Perhaps what you need is, is a relationship with the God who created you, the God who knows you from the inside out. The God who can give you who can give you a vision and a mission in life that will truly lead you to a life of flourishing, even in the midst of suffering. Now, for those of you who are Christians, many of you are, are probably saying in your heads right now. I agree with you, Joe, theologically, but practically, I'm tired. I can't do it. And that's probably what many of you are thinking right now. And And I understand how you feel because... I know we're all tired from COVID. We're all, we're all dealing with different kinds of discouragements and exhaustion. And so many things right now just feel like a chore, including our faith. And so, and, and so you're, you're exhausted, you're tired, and I, and I get it because I'm tired too. My wife is tired too. She feels like she has been running a day camp at home for our two boys in the past 15 months and counting. And so, where do we go from here? You know, it's interesting that Paul started this message with a reminder to Timothy to strengthen himself by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Why grace? Why, why, why Christ Jesus? Well, because the Christian life is not about what we can do for God. It's about what God can do for you and through you. That's why the Christian life is a life of grace We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve his mercy. And we certainly don't deserve to be citizens of that future city. But yet God graciously gives it all to us. How did he do it? He did it all through his son, Jesus. You see, God didn't just give us a new vision or a new mission. He gave us his son, Jesus not only as an example to show us how to embrace the call and the cause to make disciples, but he gave us his son as a substitute for our sin so that you and I can become his beloved disciples. 
Do you know how much he loves you? There's nothing that he, he wouldn't do to, to help you, to, to empower you, to restore you so that you can participate in this glorious vision and mission of redemption. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let us pray. Father, we're all tired. We're all exhausted from COVID. Would you once again empower us with your Holy Spirit so that we can create a new city in Toronto so that more people can experience your love and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.